please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And we are so with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this surpass but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. So the last few weeks as a church, we have been moving through a series of messages on evangelism. And the reason for this, uh, if you're unaware, is that as we begin the campus ministry season again, most of us, if not all of us, are engaged in some form of evangelism. And you might be saying to yourself, well, I'm not going to do that. 
And I would encourage you, you already are doing that. Your mere presence in worship with your brothers and sisters, your fellow saints, has an encouraging and gospel light-bringing presence and effect. That is to say that your, your mere participation in worship is part of how you are a light to the world around you. What we've done today already as a body is we've proclaimed the Lordship of Jesus, the sacrifice that he made on the cross, the witness that he gave as being the Lamb of God who was spotless and perfect, his resurrection and ascension. All of these have already been testified to, and you have been witnessing to your neighbor in the pew next to you the truth of that fact. And so if you think that evangelism is really something for other people to do or, or what have you, I would, I would call you to reconsider not only the importance of the participation that you would have, but also the fact that you're kind of already participating to that degree. So the, these last few weeks, we've been looking at messages that describe the importance of evangelism. We looked at Philippians 2 and Philippians 4 as passages in which Paul is commending the Philippians for their unique sacrifice. He, he mentions to, in the Philippian letter, he says, uh, to remember how at the beginning no other church participated with me other than you yourselves. And he, he then says, you gave once and then again and now a third time. They've, Paul has been refreshed by the Philippian church. And so we saw that evangelism or partnering in money, time, and talents, partnering with other believers to share the gospel or to do works of service, works of mercy, that is a a jewel and a crown on a church. As in Paul is blessing the Philippians, he's praising them for the fact that they were unique. That That is to say, it is extremely rare, and even to this day it is rare. And then we ended that how Paul said, you had, you had the willingness, but you had no opportunity. And how in our day, it's my opinion that we, we all have opportunity. We're in one of the greatest times of financial blessing and technological advantage the world has ever seen, if not the pinnacle of all forms of technology, medicine, science, education, learning, travel, uh, economy, food production, quality of nutrition. If you are in America, you are in the top 1%, not only of the world, but of time. Of all human history, you have, you have the greatest opportunity to use your wealth, time, and talents for the kingdom of Christ. And so, even though Paul says the Philippians, you didn't have an opportunity, though you had willingness, and now you do have an opportunity, I think for us, our challenge isn't the opportunity. It's the willingness, and it's the adopting the Father's heart for the sake of the lost. So I wanted today to look at how Paul once again is reminding a different church, the Corinthian church, not the Philippian church, of their importance in partnering with him. That is, first, he's, he's advocating that they not reject his apostolic ministry. And then, just like he did for the Philippians, he begins to testify how the grace of God worked in him so that by extension or by example, they might think, well, if God can do this for Paul then certainly he can do it for me. So I want to look at three elements today. First, the notion of needing to have integrity in gospel witness. As we go on campuses and into public schools and have people into our homes, we must have pure motivations for sharing the gospel with them. 
And those pure motivations must actually land. They can't just be pure in our hearts or minds or pure and ideal. They have to be felt. As in, no one can really receive the gospel as you're sharing with them if the whole time they feel like they're your project or they, you know, you're looking down upon them. It's important as we go out that we uphold the truth of what we're preaching and we preach in a way that is integral. It's, it's whole. It's, it's not, it doesn't have any division of motivation in it. Then I want to look at the paradox of persecution, how Paul himself begins to go through this litany of descriptions of what he's faced as an apostle and how it's not actually worked. The strategy of the enemy was for him to be crushed, but he hasn't been crushed. He's been pressed, but not crushed. And, and this is a paradox that, that persecution will come against even, as we're going to see, God-ordained mission. That is, God had his hand on Paul, and even though God had sovereignly ordained it, that didn't mean it was without opposition. And so there's a paradox. It's simultaneously ordained by God, and yet not, not, it doesn't just move forward with ease, but rather there's persecution, and even that is paradoxical. It's, it's confusing how this sort of persecution could come against a man, and yet he would be able to say, these are momentary light afflictions. Then that'll bring us to our final section, is understanding Paul's command to the Corinthians to adopt this mindset that they would be able to, along with him, say, these things are light and momentary. And I'm just so impressed by his ability to, to describe with such clarity the grace of God working in a person. And I, I hope today, my, my main and chief aim is for you to be so convinced of the, the, retur- the eternal reward that awaits you that you would begin to allow that to affect how you live this moment today. So, First, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, just like many of his letters, defends his ministry against slanderers. People had come into Corinth, just like in our series in Galatia, we saw that Judaizers had come into Galatia and they began teaching foreign doctrines. And the same thing happened in Corinth. These so-called super apostles show up and they begin to promote themselves. And Paul here in 2 Corinthians is defending the authenticity of his ministry and the purity of his ministry, explaining and reminding to the Corinthians the, the quality and the purity and the, the um, honesty that they brought the word of life to them with. So Paul begins to encounter these detractors who are slandering him, and they're slandering him not just in the public square. They're slandering him even inside the church. We've all heard of, of various ministers who've fallen out of favor or, or fallen into sin, and they instantaneously beca- become the subject of the comedy hour that night, right? You've ever been watching maybe, well, modern-day Jimmy Kimmel, but back in the day when I was growing up, it was uh, Jay Leno especially. As soon as a man of God falls, they become the laughing stock of the world, but, but understand, that's to be expected. The world will never respect Christians who it cannot understand. Jesus Christ told us plainly that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. And so he also told his followers, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. 
It's, it's to be expected that Christians will face persecution and scorn in the world. It is not to be the case in the church. And this is exactly what these super apostles were doing. They were coming into Corinth and they were advocating that Paul ought to be resisted and rejected and, and not received the next time he comes. He has just in the prior chapters proven his ministry. And then he says that it is a ministry by the mercy of God and because it is a ministry by the mercy of God, they are not losing heart in the face of his persecutions. And now, as he's using, you'll see he's using these pronouns, often we, very seldomly me, but, but often we or us or, or we along with you. He, he's talking about his apostolic team that was functioning with him. We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. He's saying that as the beginning of the gospel. When, when someone comes, as you're going to see if you're at the baptisms next week, the first thing that someone does when they are getting ready to be baptized, we ask them if they renounce Satan and all of his ways. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying these super apostles who are using these underhanded ways, they're acting like the enemy. They are our enemy, but they're not just our enemy, they're your enemy for seeking to divide us. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. What Paul is saying is that they're not preaching in secret meetings. This is how you know a cult exists if you can't go to the meetings unless you join. That's why Christian churches throughout all time have been open to public attendance. That has always been a mark of the church. Now, there are, of course, you know, scheduling meetings and elders' meetings. It's not saying that you can't have a secret meeting, but rather he's saying that we preached openly. They preached the word of God without deceit and without secret revelations, as many of the cults to this day still use. They preached in a way that was open and honest, verifiable by the scriptures. Paul recognizes that though their witness of Christ is honest, not all understand it. This is very important as you go to share the gospel. You must preach Christ with complete honesty. You must preach Christ with clarity, but it will not be understood by all. And you should be ready for people to not understand it. And this should actually, his explanation of why they don't understand it, should become the chief motivating reason, uh, apart from the glory of Christ, obviously, that maybe the secondary reason, not chief, secondary reason is because without the gospel being shared, they will not merely come to the truth on their own. Paul says in verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, people who have not come to faith, they are not just merely agnostic. That is to say, they don't just wonder if God is uh, real or wonder if Christ is the Messiah or wonder if they need atonement for their sins. They are actually under the persistent, deluding power of Satan. That is what Paul is saying here. He's saying in their case, the God of, the wor of this world or the God of this age, the God of this time has blinded their minds so that they should not be able to see the light of the gospel 
This is not a mere passive resistance to the gospel. They are being trapped under by Satan himself. So, those who cannot see are being blinded by the God of this age, the lower, the little g God, not the capital G God. And notice Paul says the God of this age, the God of this time, or the God of this aeon, this, this, this epic, if you will, this, this era in which he has limited authority to continue to uh, entrap those who are enslaved in sin from being able to see the gospel. And notice in just a few verses how Paul describes the remedy for their blindness. He doesn't encourage them to look or to try to take the scales off of their own eyes. We're going to see here in just a second how they have to have something done by God. By we would commend ourselves in verse 2, Paul is not boasting of himself or his apostolic team, but rather the authenticity of their ministry. He's saying we're commending our ministry, not we are commending ourselves, just to be quite clear. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. You cannot be sharing the gospel with other people and have secret and secondary motives. For example, I'm really into guitar. I can't share the gospel. This is a trivial example, just so you know. I can't share the gospel hoping to get more guitar players for the worship band, right? Like I target, I, I find the Jimi Hendrix of Dayton, Ohio, and I, I go and... Now, if you, I'm not saying you couldn't do such a thing, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be in accord with what Paul's saying. We, we, we're not using underhanded means. We're not finding the rich people of Dayton to get them to come to our church. That is not, although the rich need the gospel, the, the, the rich need the gospel extremely. However, we are not using underhanded means. We are proclaiming not ourselves, not our own persuasion. I, I have many political theories and, and interests, and those cannot ever supersede the glory of Christ in, in, how, I, in how I minister to others or how I share the gospel with unbelievers. So, we ourselves are your servants for Christ's sake, for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. To proclaim Jesus as Lord to another person is necessarily service towards your neighbor. Because what could be more loving? The, the first two commandments, the greatest commandments are love God and love your, love your neighbor. And to love your neighbor means to do something in their best interest. It doesn't mean to have warm fuzzies for your neighbor. It means to act in the interest of your neighbor. And what could be more beneficial to your neighbor other than them seeing Christ? And so necessarily by preaching the gospel, we become our neighbor's servant or we become our neighbor's helper. Christians, therefore, are called to this because they themselves are recipients of that same light. Look at the word at the beginning of verse 6. He says, for God, and then a statement, has shown in our hearts. We proclaim Christ for their sake, for what reason? For God has shown in our hearts. We are seeking to preach to them only because we ourselves have been recipients of God's grace. Yahweh, therefore, and according to Paul, Paul's understanding of this is that the very same God who said, let light shine out of the darkness. Now that quotation right there is somewhat veiled, but it's the exact same thing as in Genesis 1 where God said, let there be light. 
So what, God, what Paul is doing is he's saying to this Corinthian church, he's saying the very same God who was the creator God, who originally said, let light shine out of darkness, has also once again taken up not the creator mantle, but the redeemer mantle. And these two realities are, are linked for Paul. The creator God is also the deliverer God. And that deliverer God is the one who has overcome the power of the enemy. Paul is describing, excuse me, Paul is describing this as, uh, as the work of God. So, so he's saying the God of this age has, mind, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they should not believe the gospel. And then he says, we preach Christ and we have become your servants. For what reason? For God has done this for us. For God has shown into our hearts. That becomes then the motivation. It's a reciprocation. It's, it's a feedback loop, if you, if you want to think of it that way. That what God does with Paul and Paul's team then becomes the reason for their evangelism to others. And through God's grace, he will cause this to continue to go on throughout history. And indeed, we ourselves being here today is proof that God has done this. He's taken saints, he's shown in their hearts the light of Christ, and through that, he's then transformed them into people who can then continue to do so to their neighbors. So, although God has ordained this ministry, although God has told Paul and given Paul a sovereign charge, Paul, Paul has been commissioned by God and approved of by God, that does not mean that Paul then has complete free reign or, or complete ease. We saw last week how Paul was emphasizing the persecution that the Philippians encountered and then commending that they've overcome that persecution. In the exact same way, again, he is reminding the Corinthians of the opposition to his apostolic ministry. You see, so often we think, if God told me to do it, then that means it would have been really easy or it would have really worked. At the first sign of opposition, the first person to not hear the gospel or the first person to reject your offer to share the gospel with them, you think, man, maybe God didn't want me to share the gospel today. We look at, so often we look at persecution or opposition, even of the slightest degree, as reason to doubt God's, opposition, or God's approval. And yet, actually, what Paul's saying is, even though this was done by God, We've faced these things. Nevertheless, they didn't actually take. That's the paradox. Verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is one of my favorite verses. It's actually, I have a, a little plaque uh, from when I was ordained, and this is the verse on that plaque. What a, what a wonderful verse this is, because it's Paul actually owning up to the fact that he is a shell. And so often when we hear this as Christians, jars of clay, that's a wonderful phrase. Let's make a band. Oh, wait, there's already a band, jars of clay. The, it's, sometimes we hear this verse and it, we've heard it so often, we forget the impact of what he's saying. Jars of clay has been so repeated, it's now just a religious phrase. But what he's saying is we're just containers. We're just empty shells. And there has been this power that has been deposited in us. And it's not ours. We didn't originate this power. We're not responsible for this power. This is the power of God working within us. Surely we are the shells. We are the containers. But it's not from us. And because it's not from us, the glory doesn't go to us. 
Despite God's sovereign approval and the calling of Paul's ministry, it is fraught with hardships. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. There's a wonderful song from the 90s. If you were in church in the 90s, you, you remember that song, Yes, Lord, where they have this, this is like the bridge in that song. And I love that because it is describing what's the answer to these things. It's to say yes. It's to say yes once again to that divine command to be light in a dark world. Verse 10, always carrying, this didn't make it in the song, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. That doesn't sing as well. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. This is what the Christian faith is. It is a deep paradox. We believe that all men have uh, sinned. And because all men have sinned, all men deserve death. And we also believe that one man stepped in front of that for the elect and he died. And that through his death, saints can now become alive again. And even though we die, we're going to live. And likewise, even though Christ has died... We carry around that death in us, we who are hoping for the resurrection. We announce that death, and that through the announcing of that death, people come to life. This is the great paradox of the Christian faith. It's this thing that can't be understood by the rational mind alone. It, it must be understood with the illumination of the Holy Spirit shining light in a dark heart. But interestingly enough, Paul is saying that there is something in verse 7. He says, we are jars of clay... And then he says that the power of God is not of ourselves, but it's, it's God's power that is in us. And everybody loves that verse. There's power. Amen. I love power. I want power. But look at what happens in verse 10. He says, what are, what are they carrying in their bodies? They're not carrying in verse 10 the power. They're carrying around the death of Christ. That is the power of the gospel is the announcement of the totality and the finality of the death of Jesus Christ, that he paid for every sin. And that through that enunciation of that message, but, but while they are carrying around that message, it is a stench, as he says. It's the, the fragrance in the ESV, but it, the, a better word is the stench of death to those who are perishing, but to you, a fragrance of Christ. Though they face troubles, God's grace transcends their troubles by a supply of grace to Paul and his team. Though Paul faces hardships, he cannot stop spreading the gospel. True belief, therefore, yields a desire to tell others of the great hope. He, he says this in a connecting phrase. Look at, look at this in verse 10. He's saying, we're carrying around in our body the death of Jesus. And then he goes on. In verse 13, he says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, that is in the scriptures, I believed and so I spoke, therefore we also believe and so also we speak. Paul is reading from, I believe this is the writings of David, and in this writing, he, the, the writer says, I believe, therefore I spoke. And actually, this isn't exclusive to one writer of scripture. In fact, it's actually the way that every writer of Scripture was able to, to write the Scriptures. They, they believed what the Spirit of God was saying. First Peter tells us this, that they were inquiring what time or, or place the, the Spirit of Christ was indicating to them. They believed that message, and then they uttered it. 
That is what all the prophets of old and the patriarchs of old have done. They've believed the gospel and then they've uttered that. And likewise, Paul's saying we're carrying on in that same tradition according to what has been written. When we say the Nicene Creed, when we confess that Jesus was crucified and and raised, and then we say according to the scriptures, we don't mean according to the gospels. We mean according to the writings that preceded the gospels. That is according to what was written in all of the scriptures. It's not, we're not just verifying the fact of the New Testament. We're verifying the fact that this is the secret wisdom of God now revealed in Christ. It was written long ago, and now it's been revealed through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I believed and so I spoke, verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring, you, bring us with you into his presence. If you notice in this verse, he is linking the reasoning for why they spoke. He says, we believed and therefore we spoke. That is to say that Paul believed something that became the reason for their speaking. But what was the motivation for that speaking? It was that they were knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus would raise us also and bring us with you into his presence. For Paul, the resurrection of Jesus is proof of the resurrection that we all await. But not only is it proof of that, it also becomes the motivation for evangelism. That is, he's not just saying that we we wanted to evangelize to see the culture changed, or we wanted to evangelize to see the Roman Empire slowly dwindle over centuries. He's saying that they were convinced of the resurrection from the dead. And that convincing became the motivation for evangelism. So many Christians struggle with motivation. They, they, they wonder whether they should be doing evangelism out of pity for their neighbor or out of uh, deep love for souls. And those are great motivations. Those aren't to be downplayed or diminished. But what Paul is saying here is that his belief in the resurrection became speaking. I believed, and so I spoke. That is to say, if you, are, if you are at all concerned, am I called to evangelize? Am I called to witness to my neighbor? Am I called to encourage the saints around me? Absolutely. Do you believe? If you believe, speak. Take that same love for Christ and love for the hope of the resurrection and turn that into reasons to share, reasons to speak. Paul's perseverance is not of his own, but comes from the Spirit. Look at verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. One of the things that I love about Paul's writings when you begin to dissect them and to begin to apply them is that they reveal the motivation, but they also reveal the source. And we can all say amen, those of you who are beginning to get a little older I'm putting myself in this category, that my outer self is wasting away. That I've already begun to, at 29 years young, I've already begun to sense where in a decade or two there will be real big problems in certain parts of my body. Because our outer selves are, are subject to corruption. They're, they're, being, they're being worn down. We're living. And, and we're, we're encountering, you know, bruises, scratches, breakings, things like this. Our outer selves are wasting away. In fact, Paul's context is probably much worse than ours. He was getting beaten up, not just by time and by 
gravity, he was being persecuted. And then he goes on to say, our outer selves are wasting away and our inner self is being renewed. That is not happening through the second law of thermodynamics. Who is doing that renewing? Is it Paul mustering up his own strength to take hold of the grace of God? No. Even though he is supposed to be doing that, he is being renewed by God. By raising his perspective to Christ, Paul therefore renames what earlier in the chapter he called crushing, persecution, and striking as light. Verse 17 is quite beautiful. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I want you to think about this. We looked at the the litany of Paul's persecutions. Beaten three times, 39 lashes. 40 lashes minus one. Beaten three separate occasions. At one point, stoned and left for dead. Shipwrecked. I, can you imagine like holding on to a piece of wood overnight? I don't like being in the pool. I don't like going to the ocean. I'm not a good swimmer at all. I'm, I'm pretty sure Paul was more familiar with, than me with swimming. But the, the point is, he, he was shipwrecked. And he was floating around with the, the floatsam, you know, holding on to, if you've ever seen, you know, Titanic, he's Jack, right? And, kind, and is it Rose? Yeah, she's on the Oh, he, okay. Whatever. The, the point is, he, he is, he's holding on for dear life. And, and God's grace is persevering him. And then he writes 2 Corinthians, and he gets to this place in the letter, and he writes down the words, light, momentary affliction. And I'm convinced that that is not a perspective that comes from the natural mind. That is only a perspective that can be granted to you by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit renewing your mind allows you to not dismiss the pain. It's not as if the Holy Spirit superimposed upon the nerves of Paul, Paul really went through what these descriptions of his sufferings were. He really encountered them. He really carried around in his body the death of Christ. He was bearing the weight of of Christ's sacrifice. And yet, the Holy Spirit has brought Paul to the place where because of what he sees in eternity, he is now able to describe these things as light and momentary afflictions. Verse 18 Uh, Sorry, verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What is is it doing? Is, Is God the one who is just allowing Paul to go through these things? Or has God led Paul on this path? I would advocate for the second. God has caused Paul to bear these things for the sake of the gospel. And through them... He is storing up treasure for Paul. It, he says this momentary affliction, affliction is preparing for us. I don't know a way to understand those words other than to say that the affliction that Paul went through is going to be rewarded by God. That it's doing something to Paul, that it's preparing Paul to receive these things, and he's storing up treasure with Christ. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. Transient is a fancy word for meaning changing. 
that they go from one state to the next. Whatever wasn't here yesterday won't be here tomorrow. As in, if something comes into being, it also will go out of being. As we look to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For Paul, he has now been able to, by the Spirit, to look toward the future and to recognize the grace of God that is coming to him as part of his reward for completing the race without stumbling. And completing that race will earn him something that is eternal, something that is unperishable, something that is not able to fade away, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would give to us this same mind that along with Paul, we would be able to look to our future, that, that we would not just, that we would treasure the gospel and, and its effect today, but that we would also recognize what we are going to receive from you, namely the vision of you and, and fellowship eternally with Christ, that that would become for us so crystal clear that it would allow us to reevaluate those things which persecute us or are painful today. We ask you, God, that you would allow us to overcome our fears of sharing the gospel, that we would instead look to the hope that we have, that you would allow us to overcome our self-centeredness and our, our focus on today's needs, but that we would look and that along with Paul, we would be able to raise our vision higher, to be able to, to perceive what he also saw. God, I pray that you would send your spirit to do this, to, to woo our hearts and our minds toward this end. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.